I suppose the biggest thing I'd want to say about the last 38 years is that God has been incredibly good to me. He let me be a preacher. And that means a, a, a lot of different things. And by the way, this isn't the sermon yet. I, it just, you know, Dave, you were talking, so I was thinking. But God let me be a preacher, which meant that I got to study the Word all day long. You remember a Fiddler on the Roof, character Tevye? If I were a rich man. No, you don't. Well, you don't remember the way I'm singing it, but, you know, one of the things he said, if I were a rich man, I would be able to study the Scriptures all day long, and that would be the very best thing of all. And it's an incredible privilege that what they call your job, but it's not really a job. It's, you know, the IRS thinks it's a job, but it's actually uh, uh, just walking with Christ and doing what he asks you to do. But uh, one of the great things is you get to stop and look at a passage of Scripture and pull out your books and look up the Greek and um, just think it through and, and work through problems and try to figure out things. And um, So God has been good to me. Let me be a preacher. One of the other things it means is that um, I haven't had an open Saturday night in 38 years. <laughs> I mean, even, even when I was off for a week or on vacation, it's, it, it, the, the, the sermon is always with you. Um, I have a friend who calls it the Sermon of Damocles. Uh, it's sort of just always hanging over your head. But um, uh, God's been incredibly good to let me pastor out of 350,000 churches. He let me pastor the best church of all. And we've had, you know, our share of, of uh, twists and turns and ups and downs and those kinds of things. But through it all, we have seen God be gracious to us and kind to us. And what a joy it has been to see people who've come through a struggle and out on the other side give God the praise and the glory for the victory of it all. Um, and so thank you for letting me be your pastor. And thank you for being who you are. Uh, not all of you have been here 38 years, um, but you can try. And... Uh, but those of you who were here when I got here, you see, you knew I'd just up and leave. <laughs> but uh, thank you for letting me be here. Thank you for loving my family uh, and my boys, now my grandchildren, my daughters-in-law. Thank you for loving my family. Um, that, that means more to me than you know. Um, I was sharing with Troy the other day that I can point to specific instances where I believe the lives of my sons were saved by the prayers of this church. And they don't even know what those are. But I do. And thank you for that. So it's... Uh, it's been great. I, I thank you for loving Randy, our pastor.
And I have such confidence in, in our church and our family because Christ is honored as Lord in our church and in Randy's heart. And you put that together, you're going to have a great church. So uh, I feel good about things and the way they're going. Uh, well, let's move into the sermon then. We have to ultimately, I guess. But in chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, Colossians 3, and we've, we've spent the last two weeks in uh, Colossians uh, in the second chapter. The first chapter of Colossians, you remember, talks about uh, the preeminence of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is um, the firstborn of all creation. He has preeminence over creation. And that he is the head of the body, the church, that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church, head of the church. And so with that understanding of who Jesus is, then Paul in chapter 2, he said, now, now make sure that no one makes you a prisoner of war or takes you captive through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and not after the traditions of Christ. And so with that sort of understanding of the, of the preeminence of Christ, who Jesus is, and that warning not to be sidetracked by the things of the world, then we come to chapter 3 and Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, and it's not like he's doubting this or wondering about this, this is the question that every person must answer first of all in life. Are you raised with Jesus Christ? If this morning you do not know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, and you do not know that He resides in your heart, then take this moment to ask Him into your heart, forgive you of your sins, and you will be raised with Christ into a newness of life. That's what baptism represents. So when Paul says, if you've been raised, he's not saying, well, some of you are, some of you aren't. He said, if you've received Christ, you are raised with Christ. A new life. So you've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. I want us, first of all, to notice... Um, a, a few things, three things really, about Jesus Christ. The first is that He is risen. Folks, if you want to respond because we didn't get to do this on Easter Sunday, He is risen. And that is the fact that changes all of history. It is a fact of history. It's not a sentiment. It's not a poetic idea. It's not a, a notion that it would be nice if Jesus were raised. What a, what a nice thought, but fictitious, but a thought. It is a fact of history that the body of Jesus Christ that they laid in the grave is the body, the same body that got up out of the grave raised in glory. Jesus Christ is risen, changed everything. His disciples were confused and doubtful. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn. They locked themselves in a room and shut the doors and, and shut the windows. And they were afraid and fearful. And when they heard that Jesus is risen... Then they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and they evangelized the very people who had put Jesus to death and they proclaimed this Jesus risen and living Lord to all the world. What made the difference is the power of the resurrection. 
It is a fact of history. The resurrection of Christ is a fact of the gospel. It is the, 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 the central point of the gospel. You remember that when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost to preach, that his sermon basically had, had four points. I only have three, but he has four. And the first was this, God sent his son. God sent him. Jesus is not an accidental figure in history. He's not just a human being who who bubbled up for a moment in the Middle East and had a few clever things to say. Jesus Christ was sent by God. His Son incarnate in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So so, um, Peter proclaimed, he said, God sent him, but you killed him. See, our sins put Jesus to death. And our sins put him on the cross. See, we owe perfect obedience to God. We owe perfect um, righteousness to God. That's what we are designed for, to reflect the holiness and the righteousness of God. You know, if you ever wonder what does it mean to be created in the image of God, one of the things it means is to reflect the righteousness, the holiness, and the glory of God. And we have failed to do that. All of us have sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of our sin is death. And so we killed him. Our sin put Jesus Christ to death. But God raised him. God raised him. And when God raised Jesus from the dead, he put death to death. He put our sin to death. He put our old sin nature to death. And because Jesus is risen, then we too are raised up to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit in a way unimagined by the world. That's why uh, the Christian faith is not a matter of a few teachings, a few ideas, trying to be nice, trying to just um, you know bring nice thoughts to people or even goodness to the world. The Christian faith is about the glory of God in Christ Jesus made manifest and real in our lives. That's the power of the resurrection. So there's the gospel. The first three points is God sent him, we killed him, but God raised him. And therefore repent. Repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter said at that point. So the first thing I want for us to notice about Jesus is that he is risen. And because he is risen, we are raised up in the power of that resurrection. Our life cannot be the same. Second thing to uh, to see about Jesus here is that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. If you look at the text, you'll you'll figure that out. Verse 1, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the of God. Now it's interesting, seated at the right hand of God is a way to talk about the authority and the power of Christ. It's talking about his position, that he holds all the authority and power of God. That's what seated at the right hand men, means. Uh, if uh, you want the theolo- uh, theological term for it, it is this is the session of Christ, which has to do with the fact that he holds all power and authority, and it also means that he has completed the work of salvation. It's done, it's finished. He has sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The interesting thing is that when Stephen, the first martyr um, in Acts chapter 7, that he gives a defense of the gospel and he's pointing out to his accusers that in point of fact they have always been um, stiff-necked and rebellious against God, 
and uh, they rise up to to kill him. And as they're stoning him, uh, the Bible says that G, that uh, um, Stephen was given uh, a, a vision and he could see into heaven and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, most commentators say Jesus was standing to welcome Stephen in. Uh, that that may well be. But the point is, he's at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that uh, we really don't need to worry so much because God never lose, tr- loses track of us. Because he gave his son to die for us and he raised him from the dead and brought him, ascended up into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God. And Paul says, where he makes intercession for us. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus is interceding for us, praying for us even now. So that, that's the, the, the wonder that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you who is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Any presidential candidate on any ballot anywhere. I'll tell you who else is not seated at the right hand of the Father. No dictator, no potentate, no world leader, no philosopher, no military leader, no industrialist, no incredibly rich by the world standard person. They are not seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus alone is seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus alone has all authority. In a few months, after November 3rd, about half of us are going to be very disappointed. One way or the other, we're, we're going to be disappointed. Somebody's going to be disappointed. Some of you are going to be really, really happy. But let me tell you. Whoever wins and whoever loses, Jesus is still on his throne. And he is still Lord. And he is still the only one seated at the right hand of the Father. Let me tell you who else is not seated at the right hand of the Father. Your emotions are not seated at the right hand of God. Your despair, your hopelessness, your, your feelings of loneliness, your feelings of depression... These are not Lord of your life. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. All those things you think you need in life, material possessions, uh, those kinds of things, they are not seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ alone is seated there. That's why it's so important for us to keep in mind who Jesus is because it radically changes how we live. Just remember, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand. Of the Father. And the third thing that this uh, passage points out about Jesus, and there's much more, of course, that could be said, uh, is that He will appear in glory. He will appear in glory. Raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, He's coming again. And one of the great, yeah, absolutely. And one of the great things about the, the, the coming of Christ is that he doesn't come in order to pat us on the back. He comes so that we might hail him as king. As all creation bows before him and confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That just changes everything about our lives. You know, normally we think of the second coming of Jesus as sort of an escape. You've never done this? Dear Lord, now would be a good time to come again. 
dear Lord, <laughs> you know, right now, if you could just see your way to come again, that would get me out of things. Jesus doesn't come to get us out of things. He comes to bring us into the glory of the Father. And the second coming of Christ isn't a way to escape the problems. It is a way to know joy, confidence, and hope through the problems. So keep those things in mind that Jesus is risen, he's ascended, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he is coming again. And with those things sort of surrounding you, then I think we can understand what Paul is really getting at as he gives the, the, uh, the commandments and the imperatives. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. That's where Christ is. He's your Lord. He's your master. Seek the things above. Don't seek the things of earth. Things that can decay, mold away. Things that rust. Things you can lose. Seek the things above that are eternal and infinite everlasting, and of just immeasurable wealth and riches. So so seek the things above, Paul says, uh, where Christ is, seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Just for a moment, examine your life and think about how often your life has been sidetracked by seeking things of earth and not the things of heaven. You know, there's, there's a, a, a saying, I don't know if people say it now, but they said it in the last century. They would talk about somebody and say, well, you know, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But the, the idea was, this person thinks about heaven so much, they're no good for the, for the earth. And it's totally impractical. Let me tell you something, folks. You're not ready to live life properly on earth until your mind is set in heaven. You won't understand the earth until you have a vision of heaven. You won't understand where you fit into this this little thing we call the world. You won't understand that until you know God's plan from heaven for your life. When Paul says, set your mind on things above, he's he's not saying, well, just uh, have your head in the clouds and have no idea what's going on. Rather, set your mind on things above. Put your mind on heavenly things. And as your mind is on heavenly things where Christ is, then you'll see properly what's going on around you. You'll put things in their proper perspective. You will not be discouraged by things that don't matter. And you will latch on to things that are eternally true. See, that's the power of heaven. That's the power of latching on to heaven. There's one thing I would, I would hope we would have this morning is a vision of heaven where Christ is. In fact, just for a moment, let's look at that. This is in uh, Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 4 and 5. I will not read the entire chapters, but have, if you have a scripture in front of you, please be looking at that, especially if you have one that's sort of broken down where the, uh, the paragraphs are, 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 are visible. But uh, John was given this vision of heaven in chapter 4. And what he says is, he says, look, I looked into heaven. He said, and there I saw a throne, and there was one seated upon the throne. See, John was also Jewish, and he was very reverent uh, towards uh, uh, the name of God. And so instead of saying, I saw God on the throne, he said, I saw one seated upon the throne. It's a way of showing 
humility before the awesome nature of God and how God is totally beyond us. And so he says, I saw the throne and there's one seated upon the throne. Let me tell you why that's important in the book of Revelation. Does anybody want to know? Sure. If you were living in the days in which this was, was written down, the big question is who's on the throne? Because the whole world was telling you Caesar is on the throne. Caesar has the armies, he's got the government, he's got the wealth, he's got the power. Caesar is on the throne, and you best bow down before Caesar. Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Curios. But Christians everywhere stood opposed. They opposed placing Caesar on a throne. And they said, Jesus alone is Lord. Christos Curios. And because of that, they were persecuted. For centuries, they were persecuted when they refused to bow down before the power of Caesar. So you're, you're reading this, and John says, hey, look, you're, you're looking at the world around you, and you think that there's some human being on the throne. You think that there's some human being who's in charge of your life, who's going to set the laws that will determine who you are. You think that there are, that there are people who are able to, to, to seize and, and, um, and control the world? Uh, you, you think there are people there because history seems to say that. But in point of fact, set your mind on things above where Christ is and you will look up into heaven and there you will see one seated upon the throne who is God Almighty. Uh, we could go into the rest of the, of, the, uh, of the description there. If you have it in front of you, just glance at it. You'll see that, that the throne is surrounded by by uh, just uh, this glorious image of, of created beings, all creation worshiping God, the rainbow, God's covenant, uh, the glassy sea, which is God's conquest of the chaos of the oceans and so forth. Twenty-four elders who are, um, I, a lot of debate on that, probably represent the Old Testament and New Testament covenant people, 12 on each side. And then, by the way, they're casting down their golden crowns around a, ga- a glassy sea. That's why when we get together and we worship together, We're just practicing for heaven. We're just practicing for heaven. Well, then um, uh, the the angel singing, uh, if you glance down this verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's the first hymn. Belongs number one in the hymnal. And then, worthy are you, our Lord. This is verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You know, so far, what is heaven about? It is about the glorious majesty of God. It's about His power to create. It's about His wisdom in designing the universe. This is what we do in heaven, is we turn towards the throne and we worship the one upon the throne for the glory of His creation and His wisdom. That's what we're doing so far in heaven. Verse 5, Paul, uh, Paul, uh, John, John sees... Um, there, there's a scroll. Somebody wants to read the scroll. Nobody can open the scroll. And he looks and he sees that there's a lamb in heaven. And he describes the lamb this way. He says there's a lamb standing as if slain. This is Jesus Christ. Standing as if slain. You know, we shall see him. We shall see him. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know the sound of his voice. But we will recognize him by the nail prints in his hands. And we will worship the lamb standing 
living as if slain, crucified yet risen. Even in heaven, the glory of the cross is going to be seen and honored and magnified. I know this because the angels knew this. Um, you're still in chapter 5, you get down to verse 9. Worthy are you to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What's going on in heaven? We're thanking and praising Christ for his grace in saving us. I've said this before, and I'll just, I want to say it as, as we leave. Do you want to go to heaven? You see, most people don't. They want to go and have a party with their friends. But heaven is worshiping the Lamb that was slain and giving him glory for his sacrifice to bring us into the glory of the throne room of God's grace. That's what heaven's all about. Because of recent events, people have talked about heaven and what's going on in heaven, and people are just sitting there talking and chatting in heaven. People are worshiping God in heaven, and they are worshiping the Lamb, and they are exalting Him for the work of salvation accomplished for us on the cross and the empty tomb. That's what's, that's what's going on. I think we can have one more hymn. Now we've got two more. Then in, in verse 12, the angels are singing. They, they, understand, when, when you get home, go back and read this. This is what you do in heaven. And if you ever say, what will we do in heaven? We're going to worship Christ, the Lamb, the one upon the throne. Verse uh, 12, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then in verse uh, 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. See, when you put your mind on things above, when you put your mind and concentrate on and have your eyes set upon things above, where Christ is, where the Lamb that was slain is, then you start to break out in song with the angels. You start to glorify Him and honor Him and worship Him and adore Him. That's what we're going to do for all eternity together. That's the essence of heaven. And if your mind is set on heaven above where Christ is honored and adored, how will we live now? How will we live now? If our destiny as children of God, is to worship the Lamb forever. kind of seems like we should proclaim the Lamb here and now. If our affection is for the things of heaven, and it seems that our affections should be for the things of heaven here on earth, and this upside-down sort of world that we live in would be, would be seen for what it is, and we would see that the only values are those things that exist in heaven. When we, when we look at just, just a very simple thing, everybody says justice. Everybody wants justice. But what is justice? Justice is what you finally get in heaven when you worship the Lamb and glorify the Father on the throne. You see, minds set on things above 
determines everything here on earth below. And so this morning, I would just plead with you, really, to set your mind on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And so my challenge is not for this week. It's not for, you know, I've been giving you a challenge for the week, for the day. I want to give you a challenge for the rest of your life. To live with a vision of heaven before you. With a longing and an earnest desire for that day when we will stand together around the throne and sing his praises for all eternity. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, for your children, I pray that you would give an added measure of grace, an added measure of the ministry of your Holy Spirit, an added measure of wisdom and understanding for the glory of who you are and the wonder of what you have done is far beyond us, far beyond what we could understand or apply to our lives. But Father, by your grace, by the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I pray that here in this place, in this church, in each home, in each heart, we would live with Christ exalted and lifted up before us, looking to the day when perfectly and without distraction we would worship you upon your throne. Father, I thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen.